You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Rosalie Parker is one half of Tartarus Press, and her new book, it's a collection of short stories from Tartarus Press, is Dream Fox and Other Strange Stories. Thank you for joining me, Rosalie. Hi. You know, I want to start with the title of the book, and in particular, Strange Stories. This takes me back maybe 30 years ago when I first bought New Terrors 2 from a spinner rack off uh, in a drugstore in uh, Southern California. I used to go there and they, for some reason, had a really good selection of British paperbacks. I read a book in that story that knocked me out called The Stains. And this was by an author who I'd heard maybe a couple bits about, but never actually read. And he had such an, uh, Robert Aikman was his name, he had such an unusual style. And it wasn't exactly horror, it wasn't exactly terror, it wasn't psychological fiction, it was just strange. (laughs) So uh, in a few years, I was online and saw a collection. They collected stories of Robert Aikman from a press I'd never heard of, Tartarus Press. And that was you. You guys are Tartarus Press and progenitors of Robert Aikman. Tell me, what are strange stories to you and in this collection? What do you mean by strange stories? Well, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head by saying that you know, they're not quite horror, they're not quite ghost stories, they're not particularly sort of traditional, um, uh, I can't think of any other definitions, <laughs> they're, they're just a bit odd. Um, and that's kind of how I like my stories, I suppose, um, both to read and to write. You know, and to publish. <laughs> one of the things that, that strikes me about th- this form of of story is that it really points to the different, especially in this book. These are really superb stories, but they really punch up the difference between a short story and a novel. Mm-hmm. And because a novel really, it's a three course dinner. You know, you get an appetizer, you get the meal, and you get a dessert, which is short stories are, are like. Um, you know, a small te- uh, main dish combined with a really strong drink. <laughs> yeah. So talk about, the, about you know, your understanding of the short story form, short stories that influenced you, where you came from when you started writing short stories, which are a good way to begin writing in general. Yeah, well, I think um, um, going back to Robert Aikman, he said that ghost stories are akin to poetry so in in my view short stories sort of have um it's kind of what you um leave out as much as you put in that's that's important um and they are you know a a real form in themselves they're not just a short version of a novel or a novella they are a form in themselves and they they have to be written as as their own thing you know Um, I suppose I've read a lot of them because we publish a lot of short stories. Sartre's Press um, publish a lot of uh, short story collections by classic and contemporary writers. Um, because partly because that's what our customers seem to like, but it's also what we like. <laughs> um, and so when I started writing short stories um, about 20 years ago, um, or when I started writing again, short stories seem to be the most obvious thing to start with. Um, in fact, I've never really gone anywhere else. I've, <laughs> I've carried on writing short stories until now anyway. Um, I may be all short storied out, I think, but, um, you know, I, I, um, I really rate, I really rate them. I really like, um, I like the form. I think it's an interesting 
um, form and um, it's kind of punchy. You know, you have to really get things right. You can't, in a novel, you're sort of, um, you can you can sort of have a conversation or you can go to the shops in the middle of the, of the novel sort of thing. But in a, in a short story, it has to be all right there, right happening straight away and everything has to count, if you know what I mean. Um, and that, that's kind of what I like about it. You know, one of the things that I noticed about the short stories in this book, and then it made me think about short stories in general, is that novels, you remember novels because of, you know, you kind of live in them in a novel when you read a novel. And what you take away from a novel, it's almost a, a really good novel is like a vacation in a place you could never go. And you can take mm. away the memories of reading the novel, a really good novel, are like the memories of a vacation. It's like you were there. You live in it. Short stories don't do that. They're kind of like, you know, taking a, a drug <laughs> for a yeah. second. And, and what... <laughs> Not that I'd know, of course. <laughs> well, it's, you know, you ha it's a really unusual experience. And what you take away, it's like they shoot you out into the world and it's what happens slightly after your, in your brain after you take it that that matters. And, you know, I think of uh, Wiley E. Coyote running off the cliff with his legs spinning over an abyss. And that's what I think a lot of the short stories in this do, in this collection do. You you give us a kind of setup and you push push us through it, and it's a little bit weird. And then we're just running out over the abyss thinking what just happened? Oh my God. Uh, talk about that kind of, you know, when you write a short story, is it like writing a poem where you just kind of immerse yourself in the words and, and in the vision? Or is there, do you like think about them in advance and plot them out? I certainly don't think about them in advance and plot them out. I just write, I just start somewhere with an idea or a an atmosphere or a place or a, or a character or something and then I just I just sort of inhabit that character and it's a bit like acting really and I've done a little bit of acting you know you, you you're having to be someone else and um, you kind of can lose yourself in that for a bit and um, I think you just have to go where it takes you and that's what I do <laughs> Um, I, don't, I often, sometimes I know what the end's going to be, or, I, or halfway through writing a story, I, I kind of think of the end. Um, sometimes I write the end first, um, but most of the time I don't have any idea. I just see what happens. You know, uh, I think reading these stories for me, you talk about acting, and I think, you know, often writing is a lot like method acting where you just kind of have to pretend to be somebody else that whom, whom you're not. And I think with these stories, there's also a sense of a certain, they're acting almost as a kind of therapy for the reader to take you someplace and say, here's what it can be like. Now you're falling into that place too. What are you going to do? Well, I, I mean, I don't myself write for therapy i'm writing for kind of interest and um you know uh well just to, to explore really like an internal exploration um but um i suppose i'm interested in how other people think and how, what other people do it's always a bit of a mystery isn't it what other people think and do um and i'm kind of interested in exploring that um and, and hopefully also giving the reader a sort of totally different take on on life or thought or experience. Um, it's not it's not for any kind of um, you know proselytizing reason. I'm not kind of interested in changing people's minds. I suppose I'm. It's more kind of sly than that. I'm just trying to get in their heads a bit and make them think. Uh, I think what it, I not wouldn't. I take the any of these stories as being proselytizing in any way they more at the end you kind of sneak up on us and at the very end you turn turn whatever you're holding in your hand around the entire story and it becomes a mirror for us a way for us to see 
some part of ourselves that we never really considered could exist. And I think a lot of that has to do with the shortness. These are short stories. These are not like little novellas or anything. These are yeah. short stories. I think the longest one is only about 6,000 words long or something. Most of them are between two and 3,000 words, I think. So, yeah, they're quite short. Now, were, how, were any of these stories published elsewhere? Yes, a few, a few of them were published in, were, were either commissions or they were sort of selected for anthologies and things, but not, not most of them, just a few, yeah. You know, one of the things I think that is nice about the, the world of uh, fiction that includes the elements of the fantastic, and I, though you don't explicitly include those in all of the stories, in many of them, it's like the reader ends up thinking about that kind of thing, you know, what if we're somehow connected to people we aren't connected to, what if we can imagine we lived in a time we didn't live in, or whatever. So, and, and I think that um, the horror genre, the fantastic genre, the science fiction genre, more than, uh, you know, what I guess uh, mundane fiction or non-supernatural sci-fi horror fiction is really friendly to that kind of form. And I wonder if you just talk for a few minutes about why you think that, or do you think that, you know, literature of the fantastic is particularly uh, friendly to the small form? Yeah, I think... um... I mean, one of the reasons I, I'm attracted to it and was a long time ago, really, is that as a, you know, as a reader and now as a, as a writer of it, is that it's quite sort of, um, um, that, well, I, I, I mean, I started off as a kind of looking, as being interested in the past, actually, and as it, the past being a foreign country and a different place. And, you know, it's, it was interesting to me, and I worked as an archaeologist for a while, and that sort of thing. But I think some, you know, a lot of obviously sci-fi, but also fantastic and strange literature, is kind of about possibilities, about what might happen or could happen, um, and that kind of leads you into the future, doesn't it? And um, you know, what what was going to happen next? That's what quite a lot of us are interested in, really. Um, either next week or next year or for our children or whatever um, and yeah I think I think that um, strange literature fantastic literature can be quite sort of revolutionary in that way in that it, it's leading into um, different those different possibilities um, and different ways of thinking um, who knows where that might lead but it's kind of claiming quite a lot for it I think but um, you know that's why I'm interested in it I suppose some of, some of my interest is, is political, I'll be honest, you know. You know, one of the things I think is interesting is that, you know, the, the way a, a story that hints at the supernatural, can you, you can use those kind of hints to externalize other types of conflicts, like you say, uh, political, social. And I think, you know, as you read through these stories, um, as I read through these stories, I, I could see a kind of, you know, these political themes being addressed and social themes being addressed. But one of the things I think is, is really powerful about this is it doesn't do it in a proselytizing way. It's not a prescriptive way. It's not telling readers what to think. It is presenting readers with possibilities. You know, two points. There may be a connection between these two points. Here's what I think. Here's what the story says it is. What do you think? And I think that that kind of development, you know, I think one of the things that you do so well in these stories is to leave the open spaces, to to not do things, not tell us stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I kind of don't like being told what to do myself, so I don't really feel like I want to tell other people what to do. <laughs> it's a bit hypocritical, but wouldn't it? But, I mean, I think... When I, uh, at the end of, when I wrote my my last collection before this, I, I think I did an interview and someone said, oh, what, what do you wish you'd done differently sort of thing? And I said, well, I thought about it and said, well, I, I wish I'd been more brave, you know, had more courage, 
and about the things I write about. And that's kind of what I try to do in Dream Thoughts. I try to be a bit more brave about um, really writing about things that I think are important. And that means that doesn't just mean the personal, um, that means the political and the social. Um, and, you know, but I wanted to write about it in a way that was kind of still engaging and not, um, I mean, I didn't kind of set out to write a political story, if you know what I mean. But I, but some of them, I thought, well, I could do that here. I could, I could, I could write about that. You know, I could write about the rainforests in, um, in the story I wrote about the rainforests and in in um, in Peru. And um, um, and it kind of, you know, it, it was something I was interested. I mean, it's partly because I want to write about things I'm interested in, and I'm I'm interested in those things. I'm interested in the themes that I developed in that story and um you know if it if it makes people think about things um then if it makes people think about the destruction of the rainforest then good I'm glad you know that was that was a really a, a standout for me because of the way you you create a character who is kind of like thrown into kind of managing uh, deforestation <laughs> at the behest of his corporate uh, overlords. A and he finds himself in, in the jungle. And what I liked is that there's nothing explicitly fantastic or even necessarily kind of particularly threatening in the story. Yeah, there isn't in that one, no. It, no. But it... it Creates an apart, apart from the de apart from deforestation itself, of course, which is pretty horrible. <laughs> exactly. Well, that that's what's what's nice about the story is as you think about you know what's going on, and I don't want to you know short stories. You say two words about them, and you can spoil them, and I don't want to do that. But I think one of the things that you do really well in this story is just by immersing us in the atmosphere of something slightly strange it sort of distracts from the kind of uh, from any like uh, political messaging that's going on nonetheless it also immersed by being immersed just immersing us in that situation and looking at the ambiguities um it makes those makes the point without having to make the point yeah yeah i'm glad that it did that because that's kind of what i wanted it to do <laughs> yeah i mean i actually wrote that story because well i was i was i uh Raffus press from brazil um wanted to publish a story of mine from an old collection and it wasn't kind of working really so i said well i'll, I'll tell you what i'll write you a story and as they were in Brazil, I thought, well, I'll write one about the rainforest. And and actually, my son had gone to Peru when he was 17, worked in a conservation um, sort of area in, in, the, in the rainforest. Um, and he came, came back and told us about it. So that's kind of why it's set in Peru rather than Brazil and um, in that area, which is where he went. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of why I had a sort of connection with with the place um but yeah it's um um but yeah i i wanted a a kind of um that that sort of political element that sort of campaigning element is there um but seen but obviously you know politics is always filtered through individuals and what your experiences of life and um society and um, whether you choose to be someone who is in, engaged in the political process or not you are going to experience politics through your life and what you do and that's kind of what happens to the protagonist in the story I think um, whether he likes it or not he's kind of involved and and the reality of it is brought home to him pretty horribly <laughs> exactly and entertainingly too one of the things about a short story is that especially with these whenever you start it you don't have to worry about it going on too long and i think that that's really an advantage here you know um it it, it means that you can make your point and 
get away. I think one of the the kind of uh, structures you use is to set up a point, come all the way to making that point, and then you manage to find an off-ramp in your narrative structure that lets you like end the story in a manner that's pleasing, but doesn't uh, involve you standing up and saying, see? Yeah. Yeah, so, well, you have to know how to get out of the story, don't you? You know, you have to kind of, um, yeah, have your exit ready. <laughs> Planned, you know, the helicopter has to come in and lift you out before you get to, before you get stuck there forever, <laughs> in my case. <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a really interesting approach. One of the things, too, that about this uh, story collection is that, by and large, every human... Every character in it is fairly normal. No, there are no superheroes. There are no geniuses. The the characters are, are all pretty much, you know, middle class, lower middle class. They're often struggling. Um, could you talk about making that kind of character choice? It seems like it's a, your natural inclination to do so, is to look at the people who are not the superstars yeah yeah I suppose it's a I'm you know I'm kind of interested in in the the sort of losing side sometimes in you know the people who don't always feel that they're doing that well or um just getting on with stuff and hoping that everything's going to turn out all right um kind of most of us isn't it really so I suppose I'm going with the demographic you know it's um yeah I mean I, I I don't really I, I mean, not all my. I mean, some of my characters actually are are um, from the uh, the sort of upper classes in in Britain. Um, so uh, one or two are, um, and you know, one of them is reasonably sympathetic. I think, but that's not kind of my natural inclination. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, I mean, I, I obviously also write about what I know about best, and you know. I'm, I'm from a fairly well my, my parents were farmers and small farmers um so I'm kind of from that background myself so it's what I know best you know talking about what you know best you mentioned you are an archaeologist and worked in archaeology for a while and I think that that kind of uh, inclination of Looking back into the past, and archaeology, when we look back into the past, we just think about our past memories and assume they're all recorded on videotape, essentially, in our brains, and they're perfect, and the, the memories are formed are just 100% there, which is absolutely not true. You approach the past of the characters more as an archaeologist, realizing that Whatever the truth is, it's buried under dirt. It's hard to get at, and it's partially decayed. I hadn't really thought of it like that, but you, yeah, you're right, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so talk about you know creating characters who are looking back on their own past and trying to deal with that. Um, there's a, a great story in the, the final section, which we'll talk about, that that deals with a, a character has to deal with his father. And, and he's, you know, trying to, you know, while we think of the past as something we try to remember, more often than not, it's something we'd prefer to forget. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. But also we tell stories about the past, don't we? What we're doing is in our memories and when we talk to people about our our past is we're constructing a story about it which is a bit like a short story it's not got everything in it has it it's it's got gaps and silences and and sort of um uh I'm not, I can't get the word out but sort of um half truths should we say um and um you know so I, I think yeah I think that's the way I look about it I mean when when as an archaeologist I know that we only know certain things about the distant past and that's the material culture that's somehow preserved for us to find. We don't know much about what people were actually thinking or or doing, although we can we can kind of guess that some of it was a bit like what we do, <laughs> um, as we're the same species. 
usually. But, um, you know, it's kind of uh, um, impossible to know exactly what people were thinking when they were, say, you know, at some event at Stonehenge. Um, <laughs> you know, we'll never know, I'm afraid. So I kind of feel like that about characters, I suppose, a bit. But we're kind of seeing a bit of a little bit of what they're about. But it's 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 a story. It's not kind of a it's not a reality show or not that that's very real. Um, but it's sort of, you know, it's not a it's not a sort of um, a slice of life. Exactly. It's a it's a uh, it's a story. You know, that that brings to, to mind one of the real powers of choosing to write stories of the strange as you do, because as you were saying, uh, when we talk about the past, we tell stories about the past and the way we create those stories are from the images in our brain. Now, maybe some of those images are accurate and some of them are completely insane or wild or fantasy or whatever, but we're still telling one story. We want that story to be coherent from beginning to end. So we might say Monday, 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 this, and then this really wild thing happened. You know, we put it all together as with a, a narrative. So I think the one of the things that church stories do so well, and you do really well, is to... Um, take our inclination to narrative and then sew a, you sew up a really tight narrative that includes all the, the weird bits that we make up or maybe we don't make up. Maybe they're just the way we only way we can talk about the things that make us super uncomfortable about ourselves. Well, I think we, I think we also, when, we're, when we sort of think about the past or talk about the past, is we're kind of looking for a pattern as well, aren't we? We're looking for something that we can recognize um, something that has maybe some symmetry or, or um, you know, um, beauty or um, design maybe, um, and uh, um, you know that isn't kind of what happens in life most of the time, but it is what happens in in art and and stories and pictures and all the rest of it. So uh, I've lost myself now. Sorry, <laughs> um, I can't remember what I was going to say, um, but. Um, yeah, yeah. We, as well as as well as a narrative, it's kind of like pattern. Um, I think it's it's sort of that's fairly hardwired in us, in that we're looking for, um, you know, to understand our environment as as a sort of as a, as as a kind of species, as a as a as an animal. We're looking at understanding our environment and being able to live in it. And so we're looking for a pattern and. Yeah. Pattern matching, it's seeing the old man in the clouds. <laughs> you know, he, I'll, I'll just read one one bit from a story here um, called Memories. In one mildly curious photograph, the father was looking slightly to the left of the camera, staring intently at something that had evidently captured his interest, while the mother, as usual, smiled impassively into the lens. Indeed, when I looked through the preceding pages, I could see your pose and smile were more or less the same in every photograph. So the story continued until the late 1970s with a boy standing slightly apart from his family in black clothes with short spiky hair, the girl more conservatively dressed. And then suddenly the next page was empty, the second half of the album unfilled, the pages blank. I felt as if something had been promised to me and then taken away. That's such an evocative description of looking at, you know, uh, an album of photographs. To talk about, you know, mining, but we've all done that. We've all picked up in a little book of somebody else's photograph, maybe our own, and then, you know, you just come to the part where you get tired of pasting those damn photographs in the book and lose interest yeah well I, I mean I think if you when you look at your own photo your own family's photograph album if people happen to still I don't know um and you can remake it it brings all sorts of memories and stories about what happens at those times that the photographs were taken but if you're looking at someone else's photograph album someone you maybe don't know then you can kind of just imagine there are all sorts of things you can make up or imagine or you suppose you think you know what's happening 
but maybe you don't. Um, you know, there are all sorts of relationships there that you can kind of think you know about. And there's also a sort of voyeuristic element, isn't there, in looking into someone else's life and thinking that you can work out what's going on. So that's, yeah, that's sort of where that, that, um, that came from. Actually, I don't know quite, I'm not quite sure where that story did come from, really. I think it that was one of those ones that arrived <laughs> sort of fully formed and I just had to write it down. <laughs> you know, there's a feeling that that's essentially what um, most of the stories in this book are. They seem to be like, you know, bubbles. And so I'd like to talk about, you know, what's interesting to me is that what you were talking about earlier, the narrative form stringing together the memories into a story. Because what's nice about this is you string the, the memories together in a story and they suggest uh, some kind of supernatural or, you know, really un, not understood connection between two really different events. And as a reader, that's where we go is to that place that's not even really alluded to in the story. That's a unique talent, I think, of your work. Right. Oh, uh, gosh. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what to say. Um, I, th I think I try to write. I mean, obviously, there's a craft to writing, and I think I've learned as I've written more short stories, I've, the craft has got better with me. Um, but I try to write simply, so I'm, I'm kind of trying to explain as well as I can what's happening or what I want to describe. And, um, yeah, the, the sort of supernatural element is always the most difficult bit for me to kind of put in a story. And um, sometimes it's almost like an afterthought. I think, oh, I've been writing this story and now I've got to, I've got to remember that I've got to put the strange bit in. <laughs> so sometimes it's, it is actually literally done afterwards. <laughs> but... I think, yeah, in a way, you're right. I think that you can sort of suggest the space in which the supernatural happens. But how can you actually describe the supernatural? I'm not sure you can. I mean, you know, or not very well anyway, if you try. Um, so, yeah, it's the space in which it happens is the, is the thing you're aiming for. And that, that's where the reader comes in because the reader can, you know, put their own um, gloss on that one. <laughs> And I think that that is the real subtle art of the short story, which is to say less. You have to figure out how much less to say. Did you ever find yourself like writing a short story and saying, over-explained at the end, gotta cut it off 500 words earlier because that way I can, you know, send, launch, I don't need to say all this stuff to the reader. They should be happening for them. It's kind of the opposite. I quite often write, I write, I tend to write really short and then, and sort of then have to expand it <laughs> so that it's understandable <laughs> to anyone else. Um, I, I, I seem to be, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I write quite short, short stories because um, I just, I, t I tend to sort of hone everything down and too much, really, if anything, and then have to kind of expand it slightly. Um, but um, so, no, I don't I don't usually cut it lots out uh, at all. If anything, I have to kind of make myself write more. Um, I think I'm just a lazy <laughs> and B, um, I kind of found my writing skills in one of my jobs in archaeology, which was writing the descriptions of um, ancient monuments in in England. So I had to write a very succinct and very precise description of whatever it was, you know, a, a prehistoric route barrow or a castle or something. And that had to be so precise because it was the legal definition of that mo monument, of, of a protected monument. So if it was ever kind of, this is going on a bit, but if they were ever, um, if it was ever sort of questioned in court, say, um, that if description was the legal description of the monument, so it, I had to be very precise and I kind of learned how to describe things very precisely. So 
I think that's why I write in a succinct way. Um, I kind of, I couldn't get rid of those. Once I knew how to do that precise thing, I couldn't not undo it. I can't write long flowery passages and you know, <laughs> diversions sort of thing. <laughs> There's a, a short story that involves a, a, a visit to one of these ancient monuments, uh, several of them. And, and I, I've actually uh, toured a bit of Britain and uh, a writer named Phil Rickman showed me around to some of these ancient barrows where you'll just look at a field and see a slight rise and some rocks like with moss going on them. And then when you walk around, you can see that, you know, somebody could crawl into there and, and used to crawl into those mm. little barrows. Uh, and it struck me how interesting it was to live in a place where you could walk around and see things that were, you know, hundreds, thousands of years old. And that in itself must be kind of haunting in a, you know, a really strong way. Well, yeah, I mean, the village in North Yorkshire where I live now, where I am now, um, has a sort of round bar, prehistoric round bar dating from the sort of early Bronze Age. So, what, 5,000 years old at the top of the village. And there's a sort of uh, Norman uh, castle mound behind the pub, which is sort of ideal, you know, <laughs> for me. Um, so, yeah, it is all around, you know, it's all around you um, in a small country like England. Um, there are, it's amazing that anything survives, really, because we're so crowded and developed and all the rest of it. But the stuff is there. You just have to know where to look. And I suppose I do because of my background. <laughs> you know, one of the interesting stories to me was, of course, the, the title story, Dream Fox. Um, now, uh, for what's worth, I, I uh, every week for the past almost three, four years, I've been uh, providing one hour slab of ambient music for a show that's a phone-in show about dreams. So I take that music in and then I engineer the show and every day, every week I listen to some new, um, you know, somebody else talking about dreams. And you use these in a couple ways that are familiar to me from the dream show. One is the idea of encountering real people in your life, your past and in particular, you know, your mother, father, people who were in your life while you were alive. Uh, is that something that happens to you in your dreams? Um, occasionally. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, 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 I kind of, um, I tend to have one or two dreams that I remember really, you know, and the rest I forget sort of thing. But, um, one of them involved, yeah, one of them was involved my mother. I mean, my parents died when I was young, so. You know, I haven't seen or spoken to them in reality for a, a very long time, but um, I do. I do sometimes dream about them. Yeah. Um, in the the story Dream Fox, <clears throat> your a protagonist is a young girl who who dreams about the foxes that live in her yard, and I thought that was really a powerful story, just the kind of immersive uh, nature of it, and. So I'd like you to talk about using that element because dreams are an element of the fantastic that are in all of our lives. Everybody dreams mm. whether they remember it or not. So talk about using dreams as a plot element to help externalize what's going on with the girl, which is it's so interesting. We conceal things from ourselves in everyday reality and then let them run rampant in dreams. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I tend to overuse. I think I try to. I think about using dreams too often in stories, and so I try to, um, uh, you know, ration it a bit. But in that one, it, I mean, I Dream Fox um, was actually a commissioned story that I was asked to write a story. I could choose which animal I wrote about. It was a kind of horror. Had to be a horror story. So I'm not very good at writing horror, but I had to make it a bit horrible at the end. And um, uh, 
so I chose, I, I got in early. I, I made sure I got in early and chose a fox. Um, that was my preferred animal by a long way. It's partly because um, of us, I mean, it's the story, my story is very different, but there is a, a sort of um, a history of stories, of strange stories about foxes in Britain. One of them is David Garnett's um, Lady into Fox, famous novel, which again is a sort of, um, I won't say much about what happens at the end of my story, but it's a sort of similar kind of idea. Um, so I wanted to, I wanted to talk about a fox. Um, I, I hadn't, I didn't think about the title until um, after I'd written the story. Actually, I didn't think it up. But yeah, I mean, I think I was looking at in Dream Fox that uh, it starts with, you know, what are obviously dreams. Uh, there are dreams, but then it becomes difficult to know whether um, we're talking about dreams or a kind of you know, what in a clinical sense would be called a psychotic experience or whether it's really happening or, you know, all of that's left fairly open. Um, and I suppose um, there's also the whole, um, you know, foxes are a very sort of potent symbol in, in Britain uh, because of fox hunting, which is now banned. Fox hunting with hounds is now banned. Um, but lots of people in the countryside sort of feel it shouldn't be banned. Um, I grew up in the countryside and I hated it as a child and I hate it now. Um, so my, I was always on the side of the fox. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it's all oh, that's it sounds very messy, but um, there were all sorts of things that went into that story, all to, things to do with my background, living on a farm and growing up on a farm. Um, you know, how you should protect uh, farm animals from a fox, which is a predator, um, which is what's the best way to do it, um, whether you should or not, or, you know, all those things are in there. Um, but yeah, dream fox. It's also, um, um, uh, a, a kind of reference to the, um, um, oh God, my, it's the poem Thought Fox by, um, I've forgotten his name, who's the poet who wrote Thought Fox, uh, Sylvia Plath's um, one-time husband, um, Yorkshire poet. Ted Hughes? Ted Hughes, yeah. Thought Fox is a poem I read as a child at school, and it's the first poem I ever really, really liked and understood. And um, it got me into writing poetry, which I did for quite a long time, for I gave it up in my sort of late 20s, I think. Um, so yeah, it's all all of those things, and there are many, many things, including Basil Brush here, um, behind me, the 1970s children's entertainer, um, <laughs> went into writing Dream Fox, <laughs> and it was um, uh, Johnny Maine's anthology about some um, um, animals and horror that um, it first appeared in. And I should say that say thanks to Johnny because he kind of was very encouraging about the story. So as well as commissioning it. <laughs> In This book ends with a, a book within a book. Uh, the book within a book is Mary Bell Grove's book of unusual experiences. And does this point the way to your, you're tired of short stories and now you want to write a novel? Because it, it it has the the seeds of that in it. And talk about the the you know the concept of this book within a book which i think is very clever and it's really fun to read well yeah it was quite fun to write actually um but i um yeah i kind of had this thing i had to write a novel there was nothing you know short stories lovely but novels are what really count aren't they that's what people say and publishers say and you know readers and so i had to write a novel so i've had this idea that i'd write this you know, portmanteau novel, mosaic novel about um, sort of uh, uh, strange experiences that people would would write real accounts of their real strange um, experiences, and that I'd somehow be able to tie all this together um, in a novel. And um, so I started writing some of the accounts of these strange experiences that the various characters had, and about after the fifth one, I think I thought. 
you're writing short stories here. <laughs> you're not writing a novel. They're short stories. And um, I couldn't think of a way of tying them all together as a novel. So I thought I'd give up and write, write some more accounts because it was fun. And I'd actually had the idea of the um, it being a sort of book of these things by um, that an old lady was collecting together because she um, wanted scientists to have the accounts to look at and um, see if they could work out how they could explain them. Um, and um, so she she was there at the beginning, but um, you know I decided that after the nine. Um, uh, of the accounts I couldn't think of anything any other paranormal experiences that you could have so I gave up <laughs> and it um and so they kind of ended up in Dreamfox instead you know um one of the things that I, I really love about these stories is they're they're all you know kind of first person so uh talk about you know, creating these uh you know what these are is essentially it's a Fordian fiction, uh, as uh, Charles Fort was a fellow back in the thirties, nineteen thirties, who uh, suggested that you know there were a bunch of accounts that real people had made, you know stories they would tell, things they had seen that didn't fall into science, so science ignored them. He called his book a collection of these stories, The Book of the Damned. And this is kind of like a, a, a mini fictional book of the, the Damned. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think when I grew up in the seven, 1970s, so, you know, the time of the, the sort of Yuri Geller and um, von Zenneken's books about um, the ancient world and spacemen and stuff, all of that stuff was around. So this was kind of it's kind of like a, a throwback to to then and you know the things that were on the periphery of my interest then <laughs> uh, when I was a child. Um, but I think um, the I mean one of the one of the problems is that um, if you read real accounts, real inverted commas accounts of actual paranormal experiences, they're often quite dull because it's very difficult to describe them. Um, and also, you know, it's like, you know, the headless woman walks across the road and, and she's in a grey dress and then she disappears. And that's not a very interesting ghost story, really. Um, so I had to find a way of making the stories, stories, um, making the accounts into stories. And we've got, we're back to stories again. So they're kind of, but it's difficult to do that if you're writing in the first person because you, it should be, it should seem as if it's a real experience. Um, it should seem that the person who is who is making the account um, really believes in what happened and what's happened to them. Um, and we've talked already about um, having sort of, uh, you know, how is it really real when you remember things from the past? You forget stuff about it. You make stuff up. You know, but in some ways. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in what the person who's experienced the odd, strange experience feels about it, how it's affected them, how it affects their life. Um, and I accept, although I'm kind of an atheist, I accept that people have these experiences. And in fact, I've had one myself. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I think those, I'm interested, there's a part of me that feels that those sorts of experiences those strange paranormal things are kind of around the corner you know we might find out more about them at some point I'm like you know my Mary Belgrove the um the woman who who publishes the book about them um maybe we'll find out more about them or maybe we won't <laughs> um who knows um but I am interested still in them I mean I don't think you can you can sort of um um, discount everything that's strange and weird in the world and unexplained. Can you share your strange experience? Oh, um, <laughs> well, um, basically, I grew up in a haunted house. Um, we heard um, we we didn't we never saw anything, but we could hear music in 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 a mute room that um, 
we called the piano room because it had our sort of musical instruments in and we could hear music in there when there was no one there. And some of the music was really quite complicated and it's sort of a bit like, so it's, it's the basis of one of the stories in the book. But um, um, I can't explain it. And, and other people have heard it, including, you know, Ray, my partner, and um, none of us can, none of, we grew up with it and it wasn't unusual for us, me and my, my siblings, you know, it was just what happened. It was only when we got older that we thought, what was that? <laughs> what, what actually, why, how can you explain what that was? And we can't. You are publishers of actual paper books that are beautiful, beautifully designed, and that's a dying art. And I'd like to talk briefly about, you know, doing that because it's really important. There's just an article on NPR about how they were talking about getting rid of an entire library and replacing it with a digital archive. And the students on the campus just revolted and said no no even if these things aren't checked out there are lots of people in the library who you know want to get there talk about the difference uh, you know the import of holding a piece of paper and also a what 600 year old piece of technology that still hasn't been outdated yet still in use yeah well i mean you know we do we i should say we do publish ebooks as well mm. <laughs> um but um, and I do occasionally read a book on my phone or Kindle or something. But um, on the whole, excuse me for doing this, books, <laughs> books are kind of useful. They're, they're, um, if I want to kind of really read a book and really get, you know, I can take it anywhere. I can open it anywhere. And it's, it's if you're trying to read on a phone, if you want to go back to look at something that you've already read because you want to check something, Trying to do that on a phone or a Kindle is a pain. In a book, it's easy. You can just leave through. But also, um, I don't know. I don't think it's entirely a nostalgia thing, physical books. I think, it, I think they are a good way of reading. I, I just, um, and also, you know, they're, they're kind of artifacts, and aren't they? And they can be beautiful, and um, it's nice to have them and keep the ones you like not just have them in some virtual space cloud on your phone or whatever. The new book by Rosalie Parker is Dream Fox and Other Strange Stories. Thank you for joining me, Rosalie. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.